Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show... Cities in Fulton County are fighting to keep their share from the local option sales tax revenue. You may recall earlier in the week we had a conversation with two mayors. Now, county leaders say that they are willing to come up with a compromise. In fact, they say it needs to happen. So we'll hear from Fulton County Commissioner Bob Ellis in just a moment. Also, when it was announced that health insurance giant Aetna would no longer require pre-approval for cataract surgery starting July 1st of this year. Well, that was viewed as good news for Medicare Advantage enrollees, except not in two states, Florida and Georgia. Now, Georgia eye doctors say Aetna and now Humana's new requirements is causing a number of problems as well as possibly delaying necessary treatment for millions. So we'll talk about that. And a new online network connecting local crews to film productions, video, and all that good stuff. It's launching in Atlanta. It's called Impact, and we'll learn more about that later in the show. Important conversations for all, as we usually have on this show. All that's ahead, but first this, let's talk about electric vehicles. Well, they are front and center at the Southern Automotive Conference in Gwinnett County this week. As Emil Moffitt reports, the gathering is being held as Georgia positions itself as a hub for EV manufacturing. A half a dozen vehicles are on display just outside the entrance to the Gas South Convention Center. Among them is a school bus. This is our all-electric, zero-emission Type-C school bus. An SUV. Right here in front of us, this is the Rivian R1S. And a tractor-trailer. So this is a fully battery electric Class 8 Peterbilt. Those were the voices of Albert Burley with Bluebird, Charles Alexander with Rivian, and Dennis Kuntz with the Michigan-based logistics company Benor which has three electric tractor trailers in its fleet. When we drove it down here, we went to the parking lot across the street at the mall and plugged it into a car charger there. Obviously, it takes a little longer because it has more batteries, but uh, the system is the same. A four-hour charge time is one of the drawbacks for an electric big rig, as is the limited range. But Kuhn says there is a market for short-haul EV tractor trailers. There's a really, really large number, 72 80 percent of Class A tractors that only do 250 miles a day or less. Burley says Bluebird, based in Fort Valley, Georgia, has already delivered some 700 electric school buses. And he says demand is high for more. The EPA has has $5 billion in the clean school bus program available for grants for these uh, products. The first round uh, was recently released, about a billion dollars. So that's going to fund a lot of school buses. With Hyundai planning an EV plant near Savannah and SK Innovation building a battery plant here, Georgia's path to becoming the center for EV manufacturing in the U.S. has been mostly smooth sailing. That is except for the intense opposition from neighbors near the site of Rivian's new plant east of Atlanta and a legal setback last week for the billions in state funding the state offered to bring that company here. Emil Moffat, WABE News. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has raised more money over the summer than during his first time, his first campaign against Democrat Stacey Abrams back in 2018. As we hear from Christopher Austin, Austin, this is more. He has more on the latest fundraising numbers released just yesterday. Kemp raised nearly $30 million in the three-month period ending September 30th. During the previous reporting period, donations from Abrams supporters more than tripled those for Kemp. Neither Abrams nor U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker have released their fundraising figures for the latest period. Kemp reports just over $15 million in cash left for the final stretch before Election Day. Democratic U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock reported raising more than $26 million in the same quarter. He's now raised about $90 million total for his re-election campaign. Christopher Alston, WABE News. And speaking of campaigns and candidates... 
GOP U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker, whose stance on abortion is no exceptions, continues to deny reports that he paid for the procedure from a, for a former girlfriend. Walker said in a statement yesterday that there's no truth to the report from the Daily Beast. Walker dodged media questions about the article yesterday during a faith event in Atlanta. WSB-TV WSB reported Walker barred media from entering the prayer luncheon, which took place at First Baptist Atlanta. Georgia airports need at least $100 million in investments to upgrade facilities to handle the amount of air cargo going in and out of the state. Now, that's according to a new government study. As we hear from Alec Helmick, he has more on Georgia's $30 billion air cargo sector. The study from the Georgia Department of Transportation did not include Hartsfield Jackson in Atlanta, the 13th biggest for air cargo, but it did look at the gaps and growth possibilities for more than 50 other airports in Georgia. It found investments should focus on busy spots like Savannah and Albany, where air cargo is expected to double. Facilities need to expand for bigger planes carrying more stuff, and technology can improve to increase efficiency. The investment, the study says, could also mean more than 1,400 jobs in the sector. Alex Helmick, WAB News. And finally, let's get ready for Major League Baseball playoffs. This is the first time there are 12 teams in the mix, all hoping to become world champs. Now, from ESPN, because, you know, they're the experts, the Atlanta Braves, quote, if the bullpen falls into place like it did last October, look out. Also, they added, quote, outside of the Astros, the Braves might be the closest to matching the Dodgers' depth and balance, close quote. I have a question. Weren't the Dodgers expected to win it all last year? Just just asking for a friend. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Recently, there was a collective of Fulton County mayors that turned to town hall meetings to express and maybe get some some support from residents regarding how shares of the county's local option sales tax or lost revenues are and will continue to be divvied up. Now, at the core of this, we're looking at about $3 billion, give or take a few bucks. But as it stands, Fulton County receives just under 5%. Actually, it's about 4.90% of the lost revenues. And the city split the 95% based on several other factors. Well, the county says they need a bigger slice of the pie, citing the need to improve and increase services to the counties. Now, earlier in the week, I spoke with two mayors from Fulton County, Rusty Paul from Sandy Springs and Dina Holiday Ingram from the city of East Point. As we continue to try to educate and inform and empower our residents to understand what's at stake is very important because as Mayor Paul said, if in fact the county gets its way, there will be either a reduction of services or increase in sales taxes, excuse me, property taxes at the local level. And the county is saying, well, if, you know, the city's on increased property taxes, then we'll have to increase property taxes. Well, the county just rolled back their millage rate mm-hmm. and reduced their property taxes, but still saying they need all of this funding for services that should come from a pool of money that the that is not allowed to be used on what they want to use it for. So we'll talk about all that, but we should note tomorrow the sides are scheduled to come together and try to hammer out a deal. But we also want to get a viewpoint from the county. So I'm joined now by longtime Fulton County Commissioner Bob Ellis. Welcome back. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, it's great to be with you, Rose. Let's begin with optimism. Commissioner, how hopeful are you that tomorrow, maybe these scheduled negotiations, y'all will be able to come to some agreement and then you will never have to talk to me again about this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rose, uh, I'm optimistic. And, you know, this is you and I have talked before on different subjects. And Mm -hmm. one of them was on um, a big property tax brouhaha that took place back, I think, in about 2017. Mm -hmm. 
and wasn't a lot of optimism at that point in time. And there were a lot of naysayers uh, and there were a lot of critics. Uh, we faced litigation from the state. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the county did prevail on that particular issue on behalf of the taxpayers. Um, and nobody, uh, nobody suffered. Mm -hmm. I remember during that point in time, hearing from from school superintendents, they weren't going to be able to pay teachers and all this sort of stuff. Uh, but we reached a resolution that was reached that benefited the taxpayers. And at the end of the day, um, that is really what the parties in this loss negotiation should be focused on the most is not a win for the cities or a win for the county, mm -hmm. but a win for the taxpayers as a whole. Now and I'm optimistic. That can happen. Okay, so I want to address. I want to give you all an opportunity to address then, because you are you're representing the county on this. So, yep. from from your viewpoint, because I asked the mayors, we started out by at, I asked them what services that you all provide. Um, what services services do you all provide that you feel that you need this increase in the revenue share to continue to offer those services? Okay, well let's let's go back to. Uh, kind of what the light what the way that these negotiations occur right okay they occur every year mm -hmm. uh, the last so the last time this agreement was negotiated the negotiated share for the county was 14.9 percent mm -hmm. okay i want everybody to understand that now the question is how did you get to 4.9 percent before i answer that i want you to understand what lost is designed to do pure and simple is designed to offset the obligations of the property taxpayers to fund the general fund services for the county and the general fund services for the cities. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have sort of two basic funds. We have our, the, we have the fund in which we provide our general fund services through that everybody in the county pays taxes into. We have another fund that provides city like services in our unincorporated area, things like police, fire and zoning. Mm -hmm. Those are funded just by those taxpayers within that unincorporated area. The lost dollars provide no can, can by law provide no benefit to that unincorporated area only for the general fund services. Those general fund services have not changed in 30, 40 years. So the last agreement was 14.9% to support all county fund general fund services, which have not changed. All of those are still there and there are increasing demands on several of those that do exist today. Uh, so what is being really sought by the county is really a move back to where we were at the at the agreement in 2012. Uh, nothing's changed about the number of citizens we're providing services to or the services that we're providing. Well, let me ask you this. You said nothing's changed in terms of the size, but there has been a population increase, which is what's something that Chairman Rob Pitts alluded to, that the population... Well, there's been a change in population, yes. Okay. I mean, the numbers has grown. I mean, but there's not... I mean, my point, man, is... We still have the same service obligations to a larger number of people. It dropped down to 4.9 because of a, of, of, a, of the way that the state, state law is written that says if a new city gets created during the lost negotiating period, you don't renegotiate lost. Mm -hmm. The monies, even though no funds from loss were supporting these services, have to go to that new city that started up out of the county share based upon the formula for distribution that was agreed to by the cities themselves, okay, uh, and how they proportionally divided. So when the city of South Fulton was created in 2017, lost dollars for the general fund that all everybody pays into begin drop from a 14.9 percentage to a 4.9 percent. Now the effect of that means that the county lost out on about $150 million during this loss period that would have gone to fund these same general fund services that we've always had the obligation to provide. So the city of South, so the, with the creation of the city of South Fulton, right. you're saying this is the, at the core of what reduced y'all from, wow, that that's a big percentage drop there, commissioner. It's a big drop. And I don't think anybody in terms of when they structured the state law probably thought that you would have, I mean, I think, I don't know for sure, but I think the city of South Fulton may have been the largest city that's ever been created. Did you all anticipate this? Did you all talk about this? I mean, it was out there in terms of, you know, kind of when, you know, an impact to the county of the cities get created. But remember, you know, when the, when the, when you have a referendum on the city, it's only those people in the area that are voting. Sure. It's not like you put it out to the entire county and said, hey, did we create a new city? Are you fine with your your property taxes for the county general fund potentially going up as a result? But, Nobody did, you, asked that. but did you all as a commission think about this? Hey, what impact yes, will this we, have? And there was it, we, there was nothing you could do. Right. There was nothing you could do about it. I mean, you you're, you're, you can't renegotiate it. 
And so we have collectively sort of, you know, we've rolled up our sleeves and we've managed expenses aggressively. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have had to delay certain capital expansions and service expansion uh, because we knew that there's not an appetite within the county given the high millage rates that people pay collectively for school taxes and, and city and county taxes. Uh, so, um, so we knew that, I mean, and they were already, this resulted in, you know, this change meant that the property taxpayers are now funding 85% of county services. And we knew we could not increase that burden any further. I want to give you an opportunity also to address what both mayors said uh, when we spoke to them earlier in the week, one being the millage rate. If you all are having uh, these, these funding challenges, then why did you make the decision you did with the millage rate? Okay, well, the thing to remember about lost is loss is a 10-year decision. Mm -hmm. People pass their millage rates every year. It's a one-year decision about funding for that particular year. You know, and then they can make their own, and you have to make your own decisions year over year. Mm -hmm. Nothing is particularly guaranteed in terms of the digest, other sources of funding, et cetera. So the decision that was made this year to roll back our millage rate, and it's kind of interesting that people want to criticize um, you know, trying to give property taxpayers some relief in the economic times that we're in. Mm -hmm. um, because I hear a lot of the stuff saying, well, the county needs to roll up the sleeves, reduce expenses. Well, we've done that, right? And we provided some property taxpayer relief. We'll manage through next year. I mean, this is it. We're not even into the next loss period. This millage rate was about funding, you know, this particular year, 2022, mm -hmm. which is the last year of the millage rate, uh, last year of the loss period. So, you know, we'll, we'll work through that and we'll be able to manage through in 2023. But that doesn't diminish the fact that we've got significant needs looking at looking out into the next decade and that's really what the loss discussion is about and what about to what the mayor said to us in terms of that there are some provisions or mandates whatever you want to call them that you all are not allowed in terms of even if you get were to agree to this percentage in terms of what it can be used for you want to address that well well number one i i don't i don't agree with some of the stuff that's been stated on that and i mm -hmm. think there's a lot of case law and there's also um, a lot of um, a lot of other things out there that uh, contradict a lot of those statements. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you know. Similarly, you could do an analysis of every city and say that there are other there are expenditures within their general funds that are not permissive. Permissive, but lost. You have to remember that no no entity in, in local government that receives a loss itemizes how they spend their expenditures and associates them to loss. It's a relief to the general fund as a whole. Now, there have been some things out there where some cities or counties, I forget what it was in some case law, tried to say start a school, right? Well, that's outside the scope of what, you know, the enumerated powers and services and, and, and the mandated powers and services that those, those particular municipalities or counties mm -hmm. were obligated to do. Uh, but in terms of support for general fund services, um, that's what LOST is there for. Okay, uh, you said that because you said there's a yeah. lot. There's, a, there's you just said there's a lot out there that's not true because we're seeing and, and hearing, and and reading in Fulton, right. most services provided by the county are not eligible for lost funds. The cities that's, cover that's, those services. That's not right. That's that's, that's really correct. You're saying that's that not okay. That is not correct. Um, you know the the mandated services that we're required to do plus other enumerated or extra services, uh, those types of things like libraries, um, you know, public health and those sorts of things, those are eligible for funding. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the process you go through and you look at it mm -hmm. and the state doesn't, unfortunately, the state doesn't prescribe a perform a formula for how this should work. I wish they did. It would solve everybody. A lot of problems we should, and it's kind of ridiculous. We have a process where we have to have, two parties come together and negotiate something um, and reach agreement on it. Uh, it just naturally sort of results in sort of, um, you know, ill will that probably shouldn't be there. But if you look at the criteria that are spelled out in the law statute mm -hmm. and we did this analysis and we shared it with the cities, um, you know, a proportional share just upon a lot of the criteria that could be used that the county's, the county's proportional share should be upwards of 45%. Now that's obviously not what we're seeking. Um, you know, that we've had a lot that would be support. a lot. Wow. Because be lot, the right? cities, the cities tell us, and you know that because they've told you that, yeah. look, the lost revenues, according to the cities, they say represent anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of their budgets. And for mm -hmm. some cities that are already struggling with other issues, this is, is yeah. beyond a devastation. Do you agree with that? 
assessment from the cities? That's why we're not seeking 45%, right? And, you know, and that's why we've looked at several different alternatives. I mean, I think it's, it's a negotiation and both sides have to recognize, you know, kind of the, the, the needs and the challenges of both parties and try to reach, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a one-sided agreement, but an, but an agreement that, you know, gives both the cities and the counties the best opportunity to hold their millage rates the same or reduce them mm-hmm. for their citizens, as well as to be able to deliver their services. That should be the end result that we're all seeking. Let me ask you this, because I asked them that, and I think it's a fair question. You obviously, mm-hmm. obviously, you all want more than at 4.98%. You're not going to get 35%. Looks like you're not going to get 15%. What are you seeking? Well, I mean, you know, we, we've got we've had offers that have been on the table dating back to August 10th, Rose. And that's one of the things I want folks to understand mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, we've had offers out there for a significant period of time uh, that have sought to recognize some of the stuff that um, uh, and, and some of the things that are, the cities have raised. Mm-hmm. One of the offers was that we would guarantee them rev- their, their revenue such that it would never fall. Right. So that we would start the loss period and they would receive the same that they had been receiving. And the county share would only grow in sales tax revenues group. So we would assume that risk. Right. OK. So that was an approach we took that was rejected. Another approach that we had we had taken was we said, OK, we will start at a very lower percentage and we will migrate that up. It's such that over the course of the 10 year period, we would net 15 percent. We've had other proposals that we shared, you know, in our mediation session. Uh, as well. So, you know, we continue to go back and forth on those things. Um, but if you just take some of those simply, if you just took a, a proposal that was, you know, one of the proposals mm-hmm. somewhere along the way that was sort of passed out there, that has been rejected. And we've got several proposals that are even below this threshold, even at this point in time, let's just say going straight to 15%. What that would mean, and, if, and let's say it happened in year one, it's not going to cost that, if, even if that were to occur, and the lost revenues didn't grow like, you know, sort of naturally with economic growth. The absolute worst case scenario, the cities as a whole, on average, receive about 33% of their revenue from uh, from lost. Mm-hmm. Okay, you follow me? If you went, if the county went from, let's call it five to 15, you would have a redistribution of that 10% amongst 15 cities. The net effect of that would mean that the loss portion would go down 10%. So that's 3.3% of, the, of, of their individual budgets. So I'm not saying that that's not a potential adjustment, but it's not in the realm of creating chaos. Well, you follow me. I follow you, but I think if you ask certain mayors, particularly in the southern part of Fulton County, no. they may say that may that may not affect Milton or Johns Creek, or but for some of the other cities, that's a huge well, that's a huge right. risk, and it it it's again the word they use. Right. could be devastating. So since no well, one, so that what, what's interesting, because no one wants to give me a number, but I'm going to ask you again, is there a number? Is there 8%? I think, better than I think 4.9. There, I think that there is a pathway. I, I think that there is a pathway, and I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the challenges that we do have ahead of us. Okay. You know, within the county, for all our citizens, because I think they're important to talk about. Um, and I think we miss some of those. Uh, but I think there is a framework and there's a pathway forward here. I mean, I think there are some um, good leaders on both sides of this. And I think we owe it to our citizens to reach an agreement. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that occurs in the mediation session. Uh, and I'm optimistic that it can occur, Okay, uh, but it's going to, but it's going to require some give and take on both sides. All right. Um, so, you know, I'll say that to say, you know, I want to flip around and talk about some of the challenges that we do, because I mean, look in, in, in certain respects, in terms of local government, the county's a redhead to stepchild. So let's just sort of put that on the table. It's hard for a lot of people to necessarily understand a lot of stuff that we do because we're somewhat removed from their local communities. But, you know, back to blue doesn't start stop with blue lights, right? We've got our sheriffs, our marshals, all of our court investigators and so forth. And we've got incredible challenges that are going on within within those areas. We got the largest court system in the southeast. We've got over sixty one thousand criminal cases. Sure. We've got a four point percent increase in inmates since twenty twenty. Um, you know, so we've got some significant needs. And you think it's hard to hire a police officer? Imagine how hard it's hired it is to hire a detention officer into the Fulton County Jail. And everyone right? acknowledges everyone acknowledges that. Right. And then some will say, because right. I get the emails, then if, if Fulton County is is having all these issues, and I think in one of the last 
commission meetings that we, we looked into and, and your your commission chair said, you know, I don't, we got a, de- a deficit of what, 130 oh, okay. million. You know, where's well, this money going to come from? We don't have a deficit of 130 million. We have solid credit ratings, just like most of these cities do. We've got a solid reserve and we have a, and we have a plan forward to move forward with our with our budget appropriately. But wherever that is, does not that doesn't diminish the fact that the law statute allows and should allow for a due share to the county. This is not a county only sales tax and it's not a city only sales tax. By definition, it is to be shared. And I just shared with you on the front end, you know, where we are, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of where where it potentially could be. And to show you how far off it is, you know, the fact that we've got so little, there could be the temptation for us to just walk away from it because of how little benefit provides. Right. And we that that would be even that'd be even worse, that's, right? That's not the right thing to do. But my point by saying that is that shows you how upside down this thing is. You should never have a situation where there would be a law situation in any county in the state where a party would be just tempted just as could be could be say, hey, I could walk away from this because it benefits me very little. Well, I will say this. And by the way, you say you don't have a deficit, but y'all said you had one hundred three million dollar deficit. So just want to put that out there. Well, that may be before one hundred and fifty million dollar reserve. Right. (laughs) As well as before, you know, getting into true budgeting. Right. I mean, these are you know, these are the way our finance folks. Well, should should your commission chair, should Rob Pitts not have said that because he said and I, and I think I I'm paraphrasing when he says, I don't know where this money's going to come from. Well, you know, we had a, we had a session yesterday, and I think we clarified quite a bit of that. Okay. And that gap is, is considerably less. And I think we pointed, and we do the walkthrough on that. And we'll be able to manage ourselves fine in 2023 and we'll, 2023. And, um, you know, we'll tighten our belt and we'll, we'll, we'll do what we're supposed to do for taxpayers. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and be fine. All right. And here's to a great negotiation session tomorrow from Fulton County. Commissioner Bob Ellis, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing the the county's view on this. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Rose. Appreciate it. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Cataracts. According to the World Health Organization, cataracts are one of the leading causes of blindness throughout the world and account for more than, get this, 51 percent of blindness, blindness throughout the world. Now, here in the United States, it is estimated nearly two million cataract surgeries are performed in the U.S. each year. So when it was announced that health insurance giant Aetna would no longer require what's a called a pre-approval for cataract surgery starting July 1st of this year. Well, there was a lot of folks that said that's great news for Medicare Advantage enrollees. And then Humana was like, yeah, hold on. But this rollback does not include two states, Florida. And since we're talking about it, Georgia. So many in the ophthalmology community view this as problematic. So let's dig a little deeper into all of this. Joining me now is Dr. Anita Brown, a board-certified ophthalmologist with specialty areas in glaucoma and cataract surgery. Doctor, welcome. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who may not be quite aware, because we're all about informing, just uh, if you can give the definition of what, what, what what's a cataract. So a cataract is when the lens that you are born with starts to become white, yellow, darkening. It makes it very difficult for you to function. For mm-hmm. you to see. And so often when we, you know, I'd, I'd heard my elders, elders in my family talk about cataracts and glaucoma. It's assumed that as we age, this becomes an issue. But that's not always the case because this can happen to folks under the age of 40, correct? Definitely. Um, you have a higher risk of cataract formation if you have diabetes, mm-hmm. um, if you've had steroid exposure. So um, you can have congenital cataract. You can be born with cataract. Mm. Um, but more commonly, it's associated with age. And so it's also been projected that as many as 50 million Americans will develop cataracts by the year 2050. And so that statistic alone points to the increase in treatment, right? So let's talk about that. What is the most common, if treatment is the best word here, uh, for cataracts? So for cataract, we treat it with cataract surgery. Mm-hmm. That is the way to heal and to solve the problem. Um, and that's really the issue that we're talking about mm-hmm. here. So 
cataract surgery is the standard of care for cataract. Um, and right now we're dealing with Edna and Humana asking for prior authorizations. Um, they're sending patients home with glasses saying that they need to have um, try anti-reflective coating glasses that cost $400. Mm-hmm. They're having patients have to come multiple times um, to our offices, and it is a burden. Mm. We already know that this surgery works. We reached out to Humana and Aetna, and in part, statements received from Humana said the reason for this change is to better align with Medicare's approach to determining coverage for these procedures in Georgia. Eye care is using prevailing Medicaid, Medicare coverage criteria governing this type of surgery and others. Someone listening says, what's the issue here? Is it is this about money? And I, you're shaking your head, so. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense that the only states that have to do prior authorization are Georgia and Florida, where you have a large number of elderly people and people who have all kinds of challenges. Mm-hmm. Social determinants of health are alive and well in the South. And so they're taking advantage of that. And so that's why we have to push back. Um, It's completely unnecessary. We've been doing cataract surgeries um, since the 70s, Mm -hmm. 60s, before I was even an ophthalmologist. This is our basic care, standard of care in ophthalmology for cataract. Someone say, well, okay, well, what can you all in in your sector, in, in your association, do y'all have any leverage here? When you have you all, to your knowledge, do you know if your associations have, have had conversations and saying, look, this is exactly like what you just said. This is the reason here. And shouldn't people come before profits if that's how you all see it? Definitely. The American Academy of Ophthalmology has taken a huge step in trying to advocate. And that's why it was pulled back in every state except Georgia and Florida because of the work of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. But we're still pushing for Georgia and Florida and for these laws to be changed. In some states, they've um, changed the federal, I'm sorry, the um, state legislator mm-hmm. have um, written different laws to, to stop prior authorizations in Pennsylvania um, and across the nation. So I think we just have to, to, you know, advocate for our patients here in Georgia. What do you want folks to know, doctor, in terms of for folks who are not, who, who can't get this treatment approved right away when it's needed, what outcomes are we potentially looking at? We're looking at people not being able to drive not being able to function on their own. Um, It is a very low risk surgery. It takes five to seven minutes for most cataract surgeons. This is um, low hanging fruit. You know, we know that this will help people. We know that if you don't have it, you're at higher risk of having falls. And then we have to take two people out of the workforce, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the person who has the surgery and then whoever has to take care of them. So it's a burden to our community to have people not have this surgery. Let me ask you this. Who or what is the process for this pre-approval, this prior authorization request? I mean, who reviews this and how long does that take or can take? It can take up to two weeks. And the problem is when we find out that they're not approved, it'll be like the, the week before surgery. So they've already taken time off work. They've already taken, you have to have somebody with you when you go to mm-hmm. cataract surgery. Yeah. So that person has already taken off time off work. And then sometimes they'll say they need to have glasses, $400 glasses. Or they'll say that they need to have more documentation. So that's another visit, another copay. And so it's just completely unnecessary. Have you had that situation with patients that you were, you all were expecting to get this procedure and then comes this either they have to wait or, or they didn't get approved. Definitely. And, and it's sad because people are excited about having better vision. And when you tell them that they're going to have their surgery that Monday morning and they're expecting to see better and Mm -hmm. function better and they can't, 
it's a devastation to them. And then trying to re-motivate them to get excited about coming back in because people are scared of surgery. They're anxious. And this hurdle is just another hurdle in, in social determinants of health and keeping people from getting the care that they need. Let me ask you this as we begin to wrap up, because I want to go back to how the authorization request or review, because one might think, well, if the doctor, if the ophthalmologist in this case says this needs to be done, what more? Is there another expert out there that needs to make this this decision? If you all say it needs to be done, shouldn't that be enough or? Well, prior authorization started out when people were doing new type of um, procedures okay. and new type of things. And so that's where it started. And now it's making its way into standard of care. And so that's why it doesn't make sense. That's why it's not logical. Like, because it used to be something that was for, you know, off market, strange treatments. But now um, we're seeing insurance companies using it for standard of care. And that's why it, it's it's just a burden because we know what they have. We know mm-hmm. what the treatment is and creating this extra hurdle of two weeks or having to call someone on the phone and having my staff work extra hours and be on. I mean, have you ever called an insurance company? It's, it's a delay. I am not allowed to engage in that conversation on air. <laughs> So it, it's not easy. It's not even easy to get into me, you know. So it's it's challenging to get anyone on the phone when you are trying to get something done. We will con- that's the hurdle. We will continue to follow this, and we are offering to come on the the program representatives for Humana and Aetna. Dr. Anita Brown is a board certified ophthalmologist with specialty areas in glaucoma and cataract surgery. I have a lot of emails here. We will continue to follow up on this very important issue. Thank you, doctor, for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Y'all stay safe. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. For some years now, we know that Georgia has been a very popular and preferred state for film, TV, streaming platforms, and music videos to be produced. I know, because they produced one in my neighborhood. And I was like, get out of my neighborhood. No, I'm just kidding. The main reason, what's called a production-friendly tax incentive. And of course, we all know that Tyler Perry has always made Georgia a base for his productions. And back in August, Governor Kemp announced that he, what he called a, quote, chart-topping year for the film and television industry. About $4.4 billion in Georgia during the fiscal year 2022. And he said it was a new industry record. Now, according to their office, the state hosted over 400 productions representing 32 feature films, 36 independent films, 270 television productions, and so on and so on. That's a lot. So now comes Impact. Let me say, what's that, Rose? Well, it's touted as an online professional network for the film, TV industry, focusing, however, on the service, serving the needs of crew and the challenges of production. And its founders are Oscar-winning duo Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, two heavyweights, of course, in film production. And they have a CEO, because it's here in Atlanta. His name is Tyler Mitchell. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. You look like you should be in the movies. You have, uh, a, you have, a, you have a movie star, actor look. Um, well, I guess uh, I appreciate that, but I clearly don't have the talent. Oh, now, Tyler, come on now. Everybody's got talent. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. Maybe in the second career. How big is impact and why launching in atlanta i think i know but i'll let you yeah well ron bryan and i started impact to help uh, solve problems for the entertainment industry specifically around uh, movie production Mm -hmm. and film production and what most people don't realize is while there's been a lot of technological innovations and um, 
advances in things like special effects and streaming over mm-hmm. the years, the actual producing, the physical producing of movies and television shows hasn't changed very much nope. in the last 20 years. And it involves bringing hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, together, uh, renting sound stages, getting locations, uh, thousands of pieces of equipment mm-hmm. um, over a certain period of time and dates. And all of this is done offline. Um, uh, it is a network-driven industry, mm-hmm. uh, the entertainment industry, that literally doesn't have an online network. People don't use things like uh, like LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And so we have launched a professional network for uh, the entertainment industry, specifically designed. So you call it sort of like LinkedIn meets, I think you said Slack? LinkedIn meet, yeah, LinkedIn meets Slack. I mean, it's specifically designed for the entertainment industry, and we have uh, different types of tools that help make productions run better, come together quicker, and, and empower the crew. And will this also help for those who are based here in Georgia? I know you call them a crew, grip, whatever. For, so whether you're grip or whether you're a higher personnel in the production also ensuring that folks who live and work here in Georgia in the industry might get more opportunities. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges, uh, uh, honestly, on both sides. Um, uh, shows that are trying to get off the ground, uh, they don't know who the available crew are. It actually takes currently, you know, with phone calls and emails and traditional means, about five hours to find and hire each member of a crew. Mm-hmm. So on a crew of two to 300 people, you're talking 1,000 to 1,500 hours of people's time and lives are spent just finding and hiring people. I have talked with folks in this industry who say, you know, one of the issues for them is that sometimes these bigger productions, they will bring these people here. And and, and my, my, my friends, because they're my friends, they say, but Rose, we're here. They just, how do we find them? How do we connect them? That's always been an issue. Well, exactly. And that's why we launched this platform, because um, it will benefit from from the network, you know, both sides. Um, on our platform, we have a half a million crew profiles. Uh, we've got uh, 21,000 uh, registered users, currently 4,000 in Atlanta. And it gives the ability for studios and department heads and people to search by role and by location to see who the available crew are out there and take that process of five hours, you know, down to fires per person over weeks into one day. I'm surprised this is not already happening in 2022. That's the best compliment that that we could get. You know, I think that obvious ideas are are typically the best ones. And people in Silicon Valley, again, are are really surprised with how movies and shows operate with PDFs and email uh, because they see it as so advanced, you know, when they watch things like Star Wars. And this is just specifically for Georgia or nationwide? Because also... I'm asking for some states that have a heavy labor or union force, which let's be clear, Georgia does not. Some folks might have issue with that. You know, are you making, are you weeding out some folks? I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, currently in our, in our database, which is um, we have over a million profiles, half a million of which are crew, and we are inviting a crew who have credits in the industry to to join our network and platform. You have to have credits. Uh, currently, yes, you have to have credits, or you can you can register on our website uh, and and go through a, a vetting process. Now let's talk about that because one would say, you know, I've done a lot of extra work. I've even done grip. I don't know if they use that term anymore. Will that put me not place me in terms of a higher ranking in the database, or if I'm a pro- producer because I'm making the Rose Scott you know biopic, and I go on and. Am I not going to get to see everyone, or how do I do this? No, you get you get to see everybody. Um, right now, again, we're focusing uh, on the real pain point, which is people can't find available crew. It's actually causing shows to not get off the ground. Um, you know, you try to go to Atlanta, you can't find a crew. You go to Toronto, you can't find a crew. There's there's multiple cities, but because. Um, you know, the people in Hollywood or other places can't find and locate and have visibility into all of the talent out there that currently mm-hmm. exists. Um, they they do fly in people because they want to get their uh, movies and shows off the ground. And, and people on the ground here have the opposite problem, which is they don't really know which jobs are coming right. next. And they rely on their friends typically to hire them on their next gig. So this gives transparency to both sides of the market. Is there a fee? for this? There isn't a fee. Um, it's free for everybody to, to join. Um, we have a, you know, a plan to build you know, much more advanced features for production, um, communication tools, uh, things that will help uh, 
productions run smoother. And one of our, our goals really is to improve the lives of crew. I mean, they really sacrifice a lot. They work, you know, 10, 12, or 12 14, 16 hour days, yeah, six days do. a week. And we believe that, um, that the tools that we create um, that are network driven uh, through those efficiencies can hopefully make the, you know, their days a little shorter uh, so they can spend more time with their families. For those that may not have the credits that you mentioned and they go through a vetting process, how long could that take? And in that vetting process, is there some type of algorithm that you're using or is there an actual individual looking to see what has Rose Scott done in her career? There's in, there's individual vetting and then just like kind of in any industry, one of the things that we have um, available is, is that people can uh, give you a shout or essentially you know uh, vouch for you. You can cre- create connections. Oh, so Tyler could vouch for me. Exactly. So um, you, you might not have any credits or maybe just I have one, no, one no, credit. No, that's not true. I have one credit. I was in a short, a movie short. Oh, okay. I got one. There you go. Um, but but I, I do think that that's one of the powerful things is that people's recommendations do carry a lot of weight. And so, you know, even if you don't have a ton of experience, if you have a recommendation, which will show up on your profile, um, it'll help give you access to opportunities that, you know, currently if people are just looking at IMDb or something, you know, they, they might overlook you. Uh, I have a listener actually with someone I know who just uh, texted me and said, well, Rose, can you ask the gentleman how – how can they assure that these productions are also legit? Well, we're currently working with um, w- with the top studios, um, you know, uh, in, uh, around the world, um, really focused on on servicing Atlanta. Uh, again, the the problem is is starting at at the top, mm-hmm. um, you know. I we've I talked to, to to Marvel and and Universal, um, Warner Brothers. Like we've actually helped sixty productions around the world fill one hundred and twenty jobs just in the last ninety days. For here in, oh, oh, worldwide, For, uh, uh, worldwide, the, wow. the thirteen of the shows were actually here uh, in Atlanta, and these were were you know our major productions mm-hmm. that can't find people the traditional way, and we can find people for them in twenty four hours and less. I have a listener who says when you when your guest talks about crew. What positions is he referring to? All crew. We've 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 placed everybody from um, fr- from set designers mm-hmm. to prop masters to PAs. Um, we've had a lot of we've had a lot of people come to us looking for um, experienced PAs. And again, I think you know a lot of people say there are crew shortages, uh-huh. and I think Atlanta really is. Um, uh, massively accelerating um, the size of their their workforce. Um, I talked to one union official who said that the um, that their membership was uh, doubling in the last mm-hmm. last two years. Um, but there are available there are available people out there. They just don't have the means to find them. What's been the feedback so far? Because Impact is up and running, right? Is it up and running? Yeah, Impact is up and running. Um, we've got over twenty one thousand registered users after we launched here in Atlanta. Just we, a few weeks ago, right? Just a few weeks ago, we got we had three thousand additional people uh, join, and we're really focusing on uh, on servicing Atlanta because it is such a production friendly state. You mentioned um, the four point four billion that mm-hmm. we spent this year. That's up from two point nine billion in twenty nineteen. So it's grown fifty two percent just in the last couple of years. And so um, we want to really um, work with this market and and create something that, you know, really helps empower the crew, bring them opportunities that they don't us- uh, usually see, and also help the, the studios um, get their shows and movies off the ground and not get delayed. Is there anything that Impact has available now or doesn't have available, rather, that you all would hope want to bring on the line to, soon? We're going to be launching a mobile app uh, in the beginning of next year. It's going to uh, go into beta testing in December, and it's going to be very exciting. It's going to have uh, ways to digitize things like crew lists and call sheets, and we'll have on-platform messaging um, because you know right now people are using WhatsApp group or Facebook app groups or mm-hmm. you know text threads and emails and. Um, Production relies on communication and collaboration and coordination. We call them the, the three C's. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard when everybody's using different systems. Um, some movies and shows um, have been adopting Slack, but Slack, I think, is you know can be challenging for, for people. And you also have to start Slack from scratch every time. So mm-hmm. we're trying to create a system where as you go from job to job, your profile travels with you um, and your uh, ability to message and, and sort of plug into a production uh, is a lot more seamless than it currently is. As we begin to wrap up, Tyler, when you look at the fact that Georgia has come such a long way in terms of now being this, the go-to state, and we know why. I mentioned the tax, the 
production-friendly tax incentives, and you look at other productions, you think other states will eventually maybe adopt this? I mean, I don't want, look, I want Georgia and folks in Georgia to get as mean jobs as possible, so I don't want those jobs to go away. But, you know, you think other states are going to start saying, hey, we could maybe get a piece of that $4.4 billion? Well, it's not just about uh, the tax credits. I mean... Ty- oh, Ty, come on. Well, it, it, it's, it has to be the people, too. I mean, Tyler... Perry deserves a ton of credit yes, for blazing the trail here in Georgia. You need people who are committed from from Hollywood, you know, pr- producers to actually bring their show there. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't always the infrastructure here. Sure. They had to be built over time. And I mean, we don't have an ocean, so we can't. Well, technically, we kind of do, but you know, water go to tanks. Savannah, yeah, but you know, if we there's some. Some environments we just can't produce, but that's what sets are for, right? That's what sets are for. And now with things like the volume, uh, you know, the, the visual effects that they use in things like The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. where nothing is real except for like a table and a chair. Yeah, yeah it, it's really amazing what they're able to do with technology um, and kind of take you anywhere. Um, but, you know, the infrastructure, the weather, um, the quality of life here in Atlanta, uh, there, are, uh, there are so many things that Georgia has to offer that just because a state has tax tax credits. Um, Connecticut years ago um, mm-hmm. had a, a very favorable tax credit, but they didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the crew. They didn't have the people. So you really have to have people on the ground in those uh, states um, who are driving it like Tyler did. And finally, with Impact launching here in Atlanta, will this, you think, help ease some of the concerns or tension with folks who are based here who say, you know what, we're missing out on jobs because these big productions, as you even admitted, were f- flying their people in. That that shouldn't have to happen anymore, right? Yeah, I think that is the goal. You know, the, the goal is to give people, you know, in Hollywood access to see like, oh, wow, there actually are a lot of department heads who are available or, or, or these positions available rather than just relying on who they know. And, you know, and people in Atlanta rely on who they know. So mm-hmm. we're hoping that our platform will do what technology does best, which is connect people. Uh, if there is a production that involves a public radio station, would you consider me, Daniel, Kevin, and Pat? I will d- definitely consider it. You guys have a have a great location here and um, wonderful to work with, and I could I could see that happening. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> He's the CEO of Impact, Tyler Mitchell, and we'll have a link to Impact on our website. Thank you so much for coming and taking the time. And we're all about making sure Georgians get get jobs up here. <laughs> I'm going to do my best for you. I really appreciate you having me on, Rose. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, Pat St. Clair, and Kevin Rinker. If you need a bike rider, Kevin's your person. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.